Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And it's a rather sexy week here on Stuff Mom Never Told You. Last episode, we talked about anal sex. Yes, we did. It's true. And today we're lubing you up to talk about lube. Oh, wow. Yep, there it is. Slippery when wet, folks. (laughs) That could be the title of this podcast. I remember the first time, uh, like, in pop culture that it actually occurred to me as a young person what slippery when wet could mean. I was watching the terrible Batman sequel. I think it's the Val Kilmer one. Or is it the George Clooney one? I'm pretty sure it's Val Kilmer. Where Uma Thurman is Poison Ivy. And she's, she, there's like, it flashes to a sign in reference to her that says slippery when wet. And I don't, I think I must have been in like seventh grade or something. I don't know any of these dates or statistics about Batman, but I just remember being like, I get that. It all makes sense. (laughs) It all makes sense. Lubrication. It's something sexual. Yes. And it's something that's important for us to know about and understand Mm -hmm. and to not be ashamed to talk about or to use. Absolutely. We need to like destigmatize lube for sure. Yeah. I mean, because we've talked about vibrators before on the podcast. Obviously, with uh, anal sex, we talked a lot about destigmatization. But come to find out with reading our sources about lubricant, there's a lot of like self-inflicted lube shaming that goes on. Yeah. And a lot of concerns that people with vaginas have about how much our bodies make or don't make its own lubricant. And and we're going to focus more on the store-bought lubricant for this episode. But we will get into a little bit of anatomy. But first, to kind of sideline onto a podcast from a little while back, Let's briefly talk about old Ronda Rousey. I know, don't worry, we're not going to get like too personal with Ronda. However, we have to, as part of our jobs, destigmatize lube. And unfortunately, Ronda Rousey is on the opposite side of things. Yeah, so she, in early November of 2015, Gave an interview to Maxim Readers, and I think it was like a Q&A of like, ask Ronda questions. And a 36-year-old dude asked Rhonda, what should a guy always do in bed? And what did she say, Caroline? In part, she said, take his time. That's good advice. Yeah. Take his time, yeah. Uh, She says, in general, a girl takes a minute. He needs to get her ready. Okay. All right. I support that. On board. However, it takes a dark, shamey turn when she says, you should never need lube in your life. If you need lube, then you're being lazy and you're not taking your time. Rhonda, 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 listen, I know you're young and I know that, you know, you're used to smack talking your opponents as part of your game. It's part of competition, but there is no need to be shaming people for using lube. Don't smack talk my skein's glands, okay? My no. Bartholin glands. I know. Come on now. Nobody has time for this. Nobody has time for Rhonda's lube hate. And in, I think, was it, it was a salon piece that was talking about this. 
And the sex educators were coming out of the woodwork to describe all of the ways in which she was so wrong and off base. So one of those sex educators that Salon quotes was social worker Ada Mandalay, who said that depending on the kind of sex being had, lube can be essential because, newsflash, that's my note, not all of our orifices produce the necessary fluids to ensure adequate slipperiness, especially, as we talked about in our last episode, anal play. There's also so many other instances when you might need or want lube. Mandalay goes on to say if someone is undergoing cancer treatments, going through menopause, or even taking certain medications, their natural lubrication production can dramatically change and increase. She goes on to even mention survivors of sexual trauma who might feel mentally ready to have sex, but their body has become so dissociated that lubrication just isn't possible. And she goes on to say none of these things that, that I have listed are about people being lazy. Yeah, I mean, personal lubrication even gets down to fluctuations in our daily hormone cycles yeah. and stress. There is a lot that can influence what's going on down there. And the thing is, much like machines, <laughs> because are we not just robots with fleshy skin suits? Are we human or are we dancer? Oh. Yeah, machine dancer. But just like those machine dancers, Caroline... We need lubrication to keep our parts moving smoothly and pleasurably. And that's great. Reason number one, because also like robot dancers, if you don't have enough lubrication, you might injure yourself or or get some unpleasant irritation from friction. Yeah, so the vagina does self-lubricate thanks to those Bartholins and Skeins glands that Kristen mentioned, but not everybody's vaginas self-lubricate the same amount or consistently or at all. And like Kristen said, it can vary. And like that sex educator Mandalay said, there are so many different factors that go into vaginal lubrication. And so we mentioned that, yeah, okay, so the vagina does self-lubricate. It can vary. But anuses and rectums definitely don't. And like we talked about in our anal sex episode last time, the skin around the anus is super thin and sensitive. And so whether you're experiencing anal sex or vaginal sex, if the tissue tears, that can increase your chances of spreading or getting an STI or a bacterial infection. Therefore, lubrication, whether it's natural or store-bought, is your friend. Yes, and it's also your friend because it can make sex, whatever kind of sex you might be having, solo, partnered, whatever, it can make it feel better. So you have things like thicker lubricants that reduce friction, which makes it better for things like anal sex because of that tender rectal tissue. And then there's this often cited 2010 Indiana University study involving more than 2,400 women that offered a pretty solid case on behalf of lube being used regularly in the bedroom. Yeah, and so it is worth noting that they focused mostly on penis and vagina sex and masturbation, but there was some uh, penis and anus sex. Uh, And they found that women who used one of the six lubes tested reported much higher rates of sexual satisfaction and pleasure. Of course, also, while we're noting things, we do have to note that the lube company, lube maker Pure Romance, provided three of the six lubes and in-kind support for the study. But then again, it is a study of 2,400 
women. And it was, so that's nothing to sneeze at, that a majority reported more pleasurable sex thanks to lube. And one thing that, uh, I mean, I knew that there were all sorts of lubes available, but I didn't really fully understand <laughs> the, just the depth and breadth of the lubricant options that we have literally at our fingertips. Because no matter what kind of sex you're interested in or masturbation, no matter what your physical anatomy or level of like personal lubrication, there is something for everyone. There are literally hundreds of varieties. You can get things like flavored lubes, spermicidal lubes, warming lubes, which do <laughs> personally freak me out, <laughs> um, and then water silicone hybrids. And all of this makes up a $219 million annual market as of 2012. And now I'm just imagining their annual convention. I'm picturing like the Wall Street of lube. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> bye, bye, bye. Bye, bye, bye. Sell, sell. Don't slip. It's like <laughs> everyone's feet coming right out from under them. <laughs> that is a danger with silicone-based lubes. Yeah. So the three main types of lubes, excellent segue. The three main types are silicone-based, water-based, and oil-based, although oil-based is, will uh, proceed with caution. We'll talk about that one last. Um, but silicone-based relatively are the newest lube developments on the market. They last longer than water-based lubes. They're safe to use with latex, which is very important for safe sex and using condoms. Uh, they're hypoallergenic and do not absorb into the skin. But because they don't wash off as well, um, A, wa- uh, be careful with your sheets and your clothes. Uh, B, don't get any on the floor because you're going to end up really hurting yourself if you slip on it. Uh, cleanup is a little harder. You need soap. But also the big thing that people point out is that silicone-based lubes can damage silicone sex toys. So in this case, like mixed with like uh, is very bad. It degrades your sex toys, which can make them not sanitary and safe for use. And so if you're using a silicone sex toy with silicone lube, make sure you're using a barrier protection, like a condom around it, or just go for water-based lubes with your sex toys. But definitely clean up any that might be on the floor because that's going to be an awkward bruise to explain. Or like a broken arm. Yeah. yeah. What, what happened there? Uh, I'm a klutz. Slipped on a banana peel. Yeah. So there's also, as you mentioned, water-based lubricants. These are all-purpose. They're safe to use with latex products, typically non-irritating and easy to clean up. Um, but they don't last quite as long because of that. They don't have that that silicone thickness. And they're made primarily of water, go figure, um, with extra ingredients to give a little texture and thickness. And they also come in varieties of thicknesses. So they can either be liquid, so they're thin and clear, or they can be more cream-like, like a uh, a thin lotion, which a number of sources we read noted that they do tend to taste more bitter, and they usually have a little bit of silicone added. And then there are also gels that are obviously going to be less watery than liquids and also last longer, and you can use it in your hair if you like. No, that's really a thing. And we, so we were looking at a Refinery29 uh, like slideshow of, of lube. And there was one that they were like, oh, well, this one also, it's it's silicone. Uh, it's a hybrid. It can also be used in your hair. I feel like someone watched There's Something About Mary and then was like, I've got an idea. I've got a more sanitary idea. <laughs> but here's the thing. When it comes to those water-based lubricants, 
<laughs> um, not only, you know, yes, they might work well for your hair, but they also dry out quickly. And many contain glycerin, which can give some people yeast infections. I don't know why I needed to sing that, but it just we've got because like- we've got a sugar coat. Yeast infection. The whole concept, yeah. And and I, I said sugarcoat because glycerin is a preservative that helps those water-based lubes maintain moisture, but your body thinks it's a sugar. So the theory goes that water-based lube is just feeding all of your uh, vaginal flora. Caroline, you made a yeast infection pun. Sugarcoated. Aww. Aww. <laughs> It's like the most stuff mom never told you thing you've ever done. It's a big day for me. But then... There are also oil-based lubricants like a Vaseline or a lotion. And this can be good for solo masturbation to avoid chafing or to mix it up. Um, and it's also okay to use with polyurethane condoms. But. Huge but. Huge but. And I feel like a, th- this is pretty common knowledge, but it breaks down those latex condoms. And it can leave a coating on vaginas and rectums that can lead to infection. Yeah, so a study in obstetrics and gynecology found that women who used Vaseline or other oils were more likely to have bacterial and yeast infections. 40% of the women who used petroleum jelly as a vaginal lubricant reported experiencing bacterial vaginosis compared to women who didn't. And 44% of the women who used intravaginal oils tested positive for candida versus a much smaller percent. It was like 11 or 18 or something much less significant for women who were not using oils. And so what is up with that? Newsflash, people who are using Vaseline as chapstick, it's not a moisturizer. Petroleum products suck moisture out, which if you apply that, to your intravaginal cells or your rectal cells, that means that those cells are going to have the moisture sucked out of them. They're going to shrivel up and and shed, and that is going to leave you more open to infection. So not to scare you, but save the Vaseline for something else. Not to scare you, but you should be scared. (laughs) But you should not use Vaseline when it comes to partnered sex. Yes. Masturbation is a whole other thing. But here's the thing, Caroline. Way, way, way back in the day, people were obviously still having sex and obviously wanting to experiment with different kinds of lubricants. But they had no Vaseline. They had no hair gel slash <laughs> lubricant all in one. What in a, did in, they do? In a handy pump bottle? Yeah. Well, they turned to the kitchen. And in the kitchen in ancient Greece, greasy Greece... Get it? Huh? Was olive oil. Okay? So olive oil is not just for cooking. We also get our first reference to the use of olive oil as sexual personal lubricant in 350 BCE. And handily enough for them, although this is not true, please do not get this impression now in the year 2015. They also thought of it as a contraceptive. Which is not true. It does not work. Please don't do this. Please do not use olive oil as a contraceptive. Uh, also, do not use it with condoms. It is an oil. Yeah, Aristotle mentions it in his History of Animals, writing, If the parts be smooth, conception is prevented. <laughs> and next, we're going to cite a physician that I thought was fake at first. Um, and I don't mean to get too crass, Kristen. Uh, but so I was, I was reading an article about sort of the history of personal lubricant. And one name that came up is an ancient Greek physician by the name of Sorinus. 
And so I'm reading along and I'm like, yeah, soreness. And I was like, wait a second. Well, maybe you should spell it for listeners, too. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's spelled S-O-R-A-N-U-S. Wait, what? Yeah. That's like a carpenter with the last name Hammer. (laughs) That's like a seamstress with the last name Zipper. Oh, Mrs. Zipper. Mrs. Zipper. Well, so Soranus, or if you like to pronounce your planet Uranus, Soranus, thought that olive oil would prevent pregnancy by clogging the uterus. So, yeah, that's that's gross and sounds uncomfortable. Uh, who wants a congested uterus? If it's already hysterical and floating around, it doesn't need a cold as well. But, so there was this idea in ancient Greece that not only would you get nice and slippery using olive oil, but that it would prevent pregnancy, which, I don't know, frankly, I bet it, I mean, I bet it was great for the skin. Yeah. You know, at the very least. I mean, I'm imagining that women in ancient Greece just had glowing vulvas. It's very... Very well taken care of. And then if we head over to the east in ancient China, Korea, and Japan, people would boil red seaweed to get a sticky liquid called carrageenan that they would use as an old school lube. And we will revisit carrageenan later in this episode because those ancient peoples using red seaweed were onto something. Uh, if we stick around in Japan, though, from the 17th to the 19th centuries, people were really big on using mashed yams, uh, which, again, is just another thing that squicks me out. Uh, they use them to lubricate their animal intestine condoms. But fun fact, nowadays, that grated yam concoction uh, is actually a popular soup. Hmm. Any Japanese listeners who can let us know about the soup? I'm, cu- I'm curious to know if that's common knowledge that this popular soup was once possibly used as a as a lubricant. Yeah, somebody fill us in. Um, but then, of course, speaking of Vaseline, in the late 19th century, we get Brooklyn chemist Robert Cheeseburger, who... Robert Cheeseburger? Yes. <laughs> I bet his buddies called him that. I bet they didn't, but I will. Uh, so Bob Cheeseburger uh, ends up tinkering with this gooey wax byproduct from oil rig pumps that he found rig workers using to put on burns and cuts as a barrier. Well, so he looks at this, uh, this waxy byproduct and ends up pulling out all the impurities, making it safer for human use, and creates Vaseline. And not too long after, in 1904... KY jelly comes along. It's introduced as a surgical aid. It was the first commercially made lubricant, FYI, and it was made mostly of water, glycerin, and cellulose, aka dietary fiber. Mm-hmm. And the reason KY jelly dries up so fast was to lubricate incision sites just for cutting. It wasn't meant, to, obviously, to like hang out around there. Yeah, hang out and stay slippery, because then the surgeon would be like all cutting you up all over the place. <laughs> be a disaster. But in the sources we read, uh, by 1917, KY was officially reintroduced as a personal lubricant, which I couldn't... KY is very cagey with its own personal history. Mm. Um, and so if if that is, in fact, true, I couldn't find another source to back up that one source, basically. So, And I know that seems like a very small detail, but I would be interested to hear from listeners, anybody who might know, if that's officially true, that in 1917, KY introduced it as a personal, wink, 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 lubricant. I just blinked at you. I didn't wink at you. Well, is that why it was unavailable over the counter for so long? It wasn't until 1980 that you could just walk into your local drugstore and be like, bloop. 
going to buy some KY. I don't know, which is so funny because when you go into drugstores now, you see so many lubes on the counter. And even personal massagers. I know. Hmm. Well, then in 1907, hopping back just a few years after KY Jelly is introduced, we do have a little product called Crisco, which mm-hmm. um, this... By the way, this knowledge about the history of Crisco as a personal lubricant is ruining all of my childhood cookie recipes. <laughs> P.S. Yeah, so like KY Jelly, Crisco was obviously not first intended as a personal sexual lubricant. It was actually developed, and this ruins my idea of cookie recipes by itself, like never mind the use as a lube. They actually developed it as a replacement for beef tallow and candle making. Oh. Uh, but with the with the widespread use of electric light, they were like, well, we, we've got all of this like veggie tallow. What are we supposed to do with it? So through some clever marketing, it was repurposed as a cooking product. So how about them cookies? In the 1970s, though... It did emerge as a popular lube among gay men. And even in 1977's The Joy of Gay Sex, they wrote, Vegetable shortening may be the best lubricant since it's not only greasy, but also digestible. And you can make candles out of it, I guess. And cookies. Uh, Is there anything Crisco can't do? So clearly there's a rich history of personal lubricants. There's so many varieties. But we also need to talk a little bit about... Some health concerns, which you've kind of hinted at so far. Yeah, we've talked about how not using lube can cause injury and infection because if you are not properly lubricated, that can leave you vulnerable to tears, which then leaves you uh, vulnerable to infection. And as we mentioned when we discussed the whole glycerin thing, there are lubes that do promote yeast infections and bacterial vaginosis, although a lot of the studies into this are like, yeah, we need more research. And so Mayo Clinic OBGYN Mary Marnark recommends that people use glycerin-free options when available, like astroglide-free or silicone-based lubes. And some are concerned that lubricants aren't tested well enough because the FDA classifies lubricants under medical devices. So it doesn't require testing in humans, just animals. And, by the way, rectal use of personal lubricants is technically considered off-label. So they aren't even testing for that at all? Which is crazy. Well, no, because they're, I mean, they're just, they're just testing. That's such a heteronormative testing yeah, of mice. That's very heterosexist of you, FDA. Um, but according to some experiments, some products might actually damage delicate tissue, speaking of our rectums, or leave you vulnerable to infection. Although, again, Cut and dried proof is a little hard to come by. Yeah, writing in the journal Chemical and Engineering News, Dr. Lauren K. Wolf cited a 2010 sexually transmitted diseases study. That's a journal name, but it's also about STDs that found that participants who consistently used personal lubricants for rectal intercourse had a higher rate of STIs like chlamydia than people who just used it occasionally. So what's going on? The worries about this are based on my studies of lube's osmolality, which is my new favorite word, mm. Kristen. Uh, osmolality is the overall concentration of a product's molecular ingredients. So in some of these studies, when lady mice were exposed to high osmolality lube, they were more susceptible to herpes infection. So what's going on there? What's happening with all that osmolality, these high osmolality products like... 
lubes with glycerin and propylene glycol in them? Well, those elements of lubes uh, work to keep them slippery and keep them from evaporating as fast. But the whole thing is that when you've got products with high osmolality, it can put your whole body chemistry off kilter. And those vaginal rectal cells can shrivel up and shed like we talked about with Vaseline. This can potentially weaken the body's defenses, not to mention that high osmolality products and spermicidal products can kill off some of that happy vaginal flora, which can lead to bacterial vaginosis. And now I'm just picturing Bob Ross painting happy vaginal flora. Well, so what are we to do about it? First of all, don't necessarily panic, because as Jim Pickett, who's chair of the International Rectal Microbicide Advocates Group, says, yes, we have some signals that are concerning, but, quote, just because the lubricant causes cell damage in the lab, we don't know whether it has anything to do with disease transmission in humans in the real world. Because, again, going back to the FDA, because it's classified as a medical device, it doesn't have to be tested on humans. So there's a study on monkeys, which showed no signs of cell damage over six months, and using lube every once in a while and having one partner, like one monogamous partner, means a lower risk of of, of this bacterial stuff happening. Yeah, it's just the idea of protecting yourself and being smart about your sexual encounters. And there is good news. We have another recommendation. Um, in these studies that uh, Lauren K. Wolf and Jim Pickett were talking about the product Good Clean Love did not damage tissues or increase HIV risk in a 2012 study. So in addition to all this stuff, the big in-real-life worry, the IRL worry for the past 15 years, has been over the surfactant, in other words, a detergent and wetting agent, non-oxanol 9. That sounds very space-age and scientific. Uh, but this product, non-oxanol 9, had been used in spermicidal lubes for a long time because it destroys sperm membranes. And so researchers were testing whether it could block HIV transmission. Noble cause. Uh, but not only can it not, but it actually increases the risk of contracting HIV. And they found this out by following a population of at-risk sex workers in Asia. And the reason why that risk went up was because those spermicidal properties are also bad news for cells lining the vagina and the rectum because the vaginal wall is pretty great at fighting infection on its own and doesn't really need so much help. So is this a signal to think twice about using spermicidal lubricants? I think so. I think it's also a good sign to talk to your doctor. Yeah. Talk to your doctor. You know, don't perhaps have multiple sexual partners at the same time if you're not using proper protection, all of those basic things. And so, obviously, it's important to protect yourself and be smart because there is a bonus. We talked about how we would return to seaweed, Kristen. Oh, I want a bonus. A seaweed bonus? A seaweed-based lube bonus. Oh, wow. A slippery bonus. Uh, so that... Seaweed byproduct, carrageenan, that happens when you boil red seaweed, turns out it might be useful as an inexpensive topical protection against the sexual transmission of HPV. Come again? Yeah. What? In a 2006 study in the journal Plus Pathogens, they found that HPV virus particles were unable to bind to cells when carrageenan was present. And that includes sperm. Studies have shown that HPV can bind to sperm cells and go farther into the female genital tract. And so carrageenan appears to prevent that too. 
And since it's already in a widespread commercial use as a thickening agent for a lot of food and cosmetic products, we know that it's pretty safe. So it could have a good safety profile for long-term vaginal use. So are you telling me, Caroline, that we should all just like get real DIY about this, <laughs> run out and buy some red seaweed and boil it and just use whatever is left in the pot? I would tell you to go to your gynecologist. And ask them about carrageenan? Yeah. Ask your doctor about where these studies have, have gone. Yeah, I mean, I'm just wondering like what the the practical application of the carrageenan would be like are there it would be a gel there've been a lot there's been a lot of uh, conversation out there in terms of carrageenan infused lubricants mm-hmm. um and carrageenan products for this very purpose um but i would also encourage people to not throw out their condoms just because yeah so just because. Yeah. Just because, I mean, you should just have them anyway. You know? <laughs> in case you want to make a balloon animal. If you want to make a centerpiece or something. <laughs> um, but here's the thing. Using lube does not mean you're a failure or you're bad at sex or you're inadequate or unnatural. As we have emphasized over and over again, it tends to make things more pleasurable. And lube also, it is worth mentioning, is a very important resource for people who have vulvodynia and vaginismus and other conditions that make sex painful. And so there's even something, um, a stuff I've never told you, listener messaged us about a while back. um, It's something called Scream Cream, which is a combination prescription lubricant with a little bit of a numbing agent in it as well. I don't know if it's lidocaine or what. Um, But this listener wrote us and said that it completely revolutionized her sexual experiences because it made sex even possible. Yes. However, for the general population, be very, very careful if you're using any type of numbing agent for any type of sex because pain in in a normal individual who does not have vulvodynia or or related uh, conditions, pain is your body's signal that something is wrong. And so if you are, for instance, having anal sex with lubricant that includes a numbing agent, um, something something not great could happen. You could experience that tissue tearing or, or worse. So just please be careful if you're using lubricants with numbing agents. Well, and we've been talking a lot about spermicidal lubricants, but what about using lubricants while pregnant because uh, a lot of sources will say, well, you might not even need to use any lubricant because for many pregnant women, not all, um, vaginal lubrication actually increases during that time. But is it still safe to use lube while you're pregnant? Yeah, it's totally safe. But there are some things to keep in mind. Uh, this was coming from a Parents Magazine article that we found. Uh, an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Rochester Medical Center told pregnant moms that their best bet is a water-based product. And she recommends products like Astroglide, uh, Sliquid Naturals H2O, uh, yes, water-based organic lubricant, and something called Slippery Stuff. Which I, I just like to imagine that that's a lowercase, that it's just slippery. Just try slippery stuff. I don't know. Just sounds like Gak. Like Nickelodeon Gak <laughs> from way back when. <laughs> so steer clear maybe then of the silicone-based lubricants and stick more with 
the water-based lubricants if you're pregnant. Because to emphasize again, while for many pregnant women, uh, pregnancy comes along with increased vaginal lubrication, but the opposite can also yeah. happen. I mean, that's the thing with this whole lubrication issue. It's like it could be one way or it could be totally the other. And that might be for different bodies or it could just be at different times in your life. Yeah. And, and, and if there is a pride issue or a shame issue for you or your partner or your friends even around lube, I mean, I think it's safe to say that lube can be used by anyone at any time for any type of sexual activity to make it better, whatever better means. If it just feels better, if it's safer, um, I think it's okay to use. There were plenty of people quoted in these articles that we read who were just saying, like, I don't have problems with personal, my own personal lubrication, but my partner and I just love to use lube that we buy at the store to improve our sexual experience. It means we can potentially go longer or have a more intimate experience. And you can also try it out solo before you bring another person into the mix if you want to, just to see how you like it. Take it for a test drive. That's right. So, listeners, curious to hear your lubricant thoughts. And if you have any recommendations. You all always have such fantastic recommendations for so many things. So we'd be curious to know what kind of lubricants you really prefer or some that have not worked very well for you. MomStuffAtHowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Well, I have a letter here from Hillary in response to our Little Miss Perfect episode on perfectionism. So she starts out with a list illustrating some of her perfectionist, uh, like self-improvement tendencies. Uh, she says, I listened while going for a 16 mile run because I like to be able to run a marathon with only five to six weeks notice on a Saturday morning. Before I had laced up my shoes, I'd read a few chapters of Africa Betrayed because I wish I had more exposure to African theorists in school and this particular text was my book in my field but unrelated to workbook of the week and reviewed my French vocabulary, a language that I'm taking so that I will be more competitive as an applicant to work in Francophone Africa. With the exception of the issue with procrastination, the prototypical perfectionist description fit me to a T. The fear of failure, the consistently high expectations for yourself and others, these are some of my most defining characteristics. I think my particular brand of perfectionism is the result of three things. A born tendency toward perfectionism, the uncertainty of what having lupus entails for my future, and knowing that scholastic achievement was a way to get out of a town where I felt unwelcome and happy. I remember one day I came home from school and sat down to do my homework immediately after I stepped through the door. When my mom told me I could go play before the sunset and do my homework later, I responded, Nah, I'll feel better if I just get it done now. I was in the third grade. And Hillary, that paragraph really jumped out to me because I remember doing the same thing. Um... She goes on to say, when I began showing signs of lupus, I was only 13. Others in my family with the disease, especially my mom, had only begun having problems in their 30s. While I've been lucky that my presentation is mild and that I can still live an active life, in the back of my mind, I always wonder if I'll be able to replicate what I've done today and yesterday by tomorrow. Part of the reason that I'm a vegetarian and an athlete is that doctors told me that the best thing I could do for myself in managing the disease was to treat my body well. As silly as it is, I feel a weird vindication in pushing my body 
physically. At least then I get to control the hurt and say that I'm merely trying to stay active and manage my disease and stress through exercise. Hillary goes on to describe how hard she worked in school pushing herself to get a high GPA to get out of Augusta, Georgia. Uh, she says her fears were revived, however, when I arrived on campus at, at college. In order to keep my scholarship, I had to maintain a certain GPA. In the first weeks on campus, I learned about an accelerated five-year bachelor's master's program in international studies that admitted only eight students a year, and I set my heart on being accepted. As a product of a Georgia public school system surrounded by thousands of prep school geniuses, I was terrified that I wouldn't be able to keep up intellectually. I practically lived in the library. Date nights with my then-boyfriend were spent in the atrium of our our favorite study hall, splitting desserts that we'd taken out and overstuffed takeout containers from the cafeteria. I was accepted into the five-year program, and I finished my time at Johns Hopkins with a 3.94 GPA and was inducted into Phi Beta Kappa. I'm now working a wonderful research job in my field in Washington, D.C., a city I'd wanted to move to since I was 12. And yet, these tendencies towards a fear of failure and an almost manic work pace have only accelerated as I've gotten older and left academia. I dread the thought of missing a deadline, I live and die by my Google Calendar, and I pride myself on having five irons in the fire at any given time. Life as a perfectionist feels like being constantly caught in the churning of the ocean. If you've ever been in a particularly strong current, you know the feeling of being pulled down and under as the wave gains potential and momentum. You're pushed forward by a force you can't entirely explain or sense the source of. It's exhilarating and a little scary, at least the first time before you know what to expect. The second that you set an objective or achieve a goal is like reaching the crest of the wave. It's a half-second period of stillness before the force, the momentum, the potential pushes you forward and under again. I'm still struggling to maintain the aspects of my perfectionism that I like while lowering my expectations of others, not my monkey, not my circus, and your podcast was a great help to me in identifying some potentially unhealthy habits I have. So thanks, Hillary, and good luck with your perfectionism. And I've got a letter here from Sarah about our anxiety podcast as well. And she writes, I struggled with depression and anxiety my whole life. I suffer from recently diagnosed generalized anxiety disorder. What up? I can relate. So she goes on to say, one of the new fads I've found that helps me is coloring. I discovered its therapeutic benefits from an article about meditation replacements. My therapist agreed and told me that it helps with mindfulness, focusing on the here and now versus worrying about the past or future. There are hundreds of free coloring pages out there, especially on Pinterest, and it's worked wonderfully for me. To anyone who suffers from anxiety, either diagnosed or undiagnosed, I think the best advice I can offer is to find a coping mechanism that works best for you and utilize it. The social stigma behind mental health issues is more damaging than the issues themselves, so always find the people in your life who will support you. That's by far the best way to fight the disease. Thank you for your time and for the excellent podcast. I'm a relatively new listener and enjoy it immensely. Well, we enjoy immensely hearing from all of you. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with our sources, so you can learn more about personal lubricants, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 